Hi, it's Kale. Just want to let you know that this episode deals with spoilers for Arkham Asylum, a serious house on serious earth. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Matt and Kale Read Comics. My name is Matt Smith. I'm a Canadian and British cartoonist currently living in Scotland. And I'm Kale Werike. I'm a longtime mainstream comic book fan, cosplayer, collector, and former filmmaker. With this episode, we are discussing Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on Serious Earth, um, written by Grant Morrison, illustrated by Dave McKean, published by DC Comics in 1989, which is the same year, coincidentally, that the Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson Batman film came out. Yes. And because of that, it was a best-selling book. I mean, I honestly, <laughs> we can talk more about the plot and my view on the, of the plot and Batman in general in this book. Recently, they did a, another re-release uh, of a new edition. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you, which edition did you read? I read because the original. several. Yeah, I read the original, actually, uh, because I wanted to kind of stay to the original intent of the book. And then maybe later on, if I were to read another version of it, maybe then I can, you know, go in with like knowing exactly what to read. Okay, interesting. I had what I think was the original copy in paperback. Um, most of my comics are at my parents' house in Canada. And as I said, I live in Scotland now, so I don't have access to most of my comic collection. But I also bought the book on Comixology. But the version I bought on Comixology is the 15th anniversary edition, which has the original script, Grant Morrison's original thumbnails. So even though he was the writer, not the artist, he actually thumbnailed out the book when he thought it was going to be about 48 pages. So that's mm. included in this copy I have. He's got notes on the script. And there's a few other kind of behind the scenes sort of things. And then they've since released a 25th anniversary. And I think they might have even like done another one as well, like a new edition. I'm not sure which one that is. But they've released several editions of this. I don't think they've changed the main story uh, very much at all. But I know that in the 25th anniversary, or maybe it was the new edition, Dave McKean was brought back in. He was kind of absent in the 15th anniversary, but in the later one, the artist Dave McKean was brought back in to um, rescan some of the images and touch up the images, and there was a little bit of touch up on the lettering. But oh. there are several versions out there, so I just wanted—I was curious which one you've read. What was your—is this the first time you've read this book? No. So I've read this book before, a very, very long time ago, uh, when I was a teenager, and I just thought the art was too weird for me <laughs> at the time. Mm -hmm. But I, it took me a while to actually get into it and appreciate it possibly because you know i've gone through art school and i've you know drawn art myself since that like now i appreciate it way more and for the technique uh or the techniques that were used very many different techniques sometimes on the same page mm -hmm. i i had a similar reaction when i first read it it was kind of before i took a more analytical approach to comics it was years and years before i started to kind of teach lessons on analyzing and dissecting comics. And I was kind of turned off initially because it just seems, it seems very artsy fartsy. It's, you know, to, it's difficult to describe the art style because it is a mix of pen and ink. There's also photography mixed in there. There's a bit of collage, there's painting, but also the writing is very esoteric. And he, Grant Morrison has tempted a lot of different things with the writing. So there's a lot of illusions and a lot of, different layers and subtext and just a lot going on. And it did turn me off as trying to be too highbrow and just too ambitious when I first read it. So I did come back to it now, you know, with fresh eyes, trying to approach it, you know, from a bit more of a mature standpoint. But I got to say, I, I felt very similar to how I read it when I was younger. Um, I still felt a bit turned off and I still felt that it's a little bit inaccessible for some of those reasons that I hopefully we can get into. And I've got some theories on what didn't quite work and why, but I'm not a huge fan. I, I've always kind of, you know, I've got a collection, like I said, and I've got my Batman books that I kind that I constantly go back to and constantly reread. So like I've read The Dark Knight Returns many, many times. I've read Year One many, many times. This was on my shelf, but this wasn't one that I always went back to. If I was going to do a big Batman reread, I wouldn't always include Arkham Asylum. Yeah, I... I agree with you because this book is not a Batman book. It's an Arkham <laughs> Asylum book. You know, it's about the villains more than anything else. And the Batman that appears in this book is quite, I would say, weak and mm -hmm. more of a, a man in a costume than the Batman that we know. 
you know, as a as a master detective and a person that is kind of fearless, a, a you know, a human that stands uh, amongst giants, you know, like superheroes and things like that. For sure. Um, this is not that Batman. This is just a guy. And I think that's one of the biggest turnoffs about this book for me. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you said that. I mm -hmm. mean, I want to make sure we go back to explain the plot really quickly. Yes, but let's do that. I don't want to forget what I just was thinking. You said, you know, oh, he's just a man in a costume who doesn't necessarily stand next to the gods. Obviously, you're referring to the Justice League, Superman, Wonder Woman. But his first appearance in this book, he says, oh, sorry, Commissioner Gordon, I had business out of town or something to that effect which to me is a very clear, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He was out hanging out with the Justice League. So mm -hmm. he is hanging out with the Justice League. So I, I had some issues with the characterization of Batman, which we can get into. But just to catch anyone up, hopefully, you know, we do recommend that you read these books before you listen to us discuss them. But just in case you haven't read it in a while or you want to listen to us first before you decide to invest your time, the plot of this book is Joker and the other members of Batman's rogue gallery, you know, like Scarecrow, Two-Face, and Max Zeus, who I don't know if is anyone's favorite member of the rogues gallery. I don't think it's anyone's go-to Batman villain. But, you know, all these Batman villains have taken over Arkham Asylum for the criminally insane. So that's where Batman sends all of his villains when he locks them up. And they've taken the doctors and the staff hostage. They only have one request, and that request is that Batman surrenders himself and turns himself into the inmates and comes into the asylum. So he enters and he's made to confront his personal demons. There's a parallel plot as well that flashes back to the creation of the asylum and follows Armadeus Arkham, who, uh, you know, opened the asylum and was the first caretaker and the first psychiatrist to run the asylum and following his descent into madness and kind of parallels Batman's journey on this one night where the main story takes place. So that's, that's the plot in a summary. Did I miss anything important, Kale, do you think? Like, I wanted to just kind of fill in the gaps about the villains. You know, uh, Killer Croc is in it. Uh, who else? The Mad Hatters. Oh, did, did you already say Mad Hatter? No, uh, Mad Hatter is in there. I, I've got some thoughts on his depiction, too. Yeah. Uh, Clayface, uh, Scarecrow. Yeah, is also Maxi Zeus, uh, as you mentioned. So, yeah. Yeah, there's just a whole bunch of villains. You know, it's, it's just uh, nutcases loose in the nut house kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's very much the inmates have taken over the asylum. Mm -hmm. One thing I, I do want to say, just talking about the plot, um, my wife Emma was asking, you know, what, what book we're reading. And I was like, do you actually want to know? She's like, well, I'll give you five minutes to get it out of your system if you want to tell me, which <laughs> <laughs> comics are not her world. So yes. She gives me, she will indulge me, but she does have a limit. She's like, I'll give you five minutes. So I told her, oh, it's called Arkham Asylum. And she goes, oh, I know what Arkham Asylum. That's where the Joker goes when he's in prison. And that's where he met Harley Quinn. So I just found that interesting that Emma is not a comic fan, not a comic book reader, but, you know, the name Arkham Asylum is well known enough to someone like her. And I think it's because we did watch Suicide Squad together and they do have the flashbacks to Harley Quinn's origin while she's, uh, you know, dealing with Joker as an inmate in the Arkham Asylum. Yeah, Arkham Asylum has been part of pop culture in general for so long, right? I mean, when you think of back to Batman the Animated Series, or even I, Bat, I think Batman Forever had Arkham uh, Asylum uh, in there as well. Uh, and then, of course... Definitely Batman Forever. I'm trying to think if Batman Returns had it as well, but definitely Batman. Uh, Forever because the uh, Riddler ends up at the end of the story in Arkham Asylum. And maybe even Batman and Robin. Uh, oh, no, maybe. I don't know. Quite, no, they, I don't, I don't quite remember scene, that. There's definitely a scene in Batman and Robin taking place in Arkham Asylum. Yes. And of course, the Arkham, Arkham games, right? The Arkham games have been so popular. Um, yeah. Um, I want to talk about that. We can jump into that right now. I mean, mm -hmm. some doing a bit of research for this episode, people are claiming that this graphic novel influenced or was the basis for Arkham Asylum, the game. I don't agree with that. I don't think there's enough similarities I don't think the mm -mm. the plot was taken very much at all from this graphic novel. So I, I don't think this is that game is an adaptation of this graphic novel in any way. No, not at all. I, I believe it's just kind of loosely influenced by yeah. by this comic because, I mean, obviously it's Batman trapped in Arkham Asylum for the first game anyway. What did you think of the writing style? I mentioned that there are two timelines in this story. So we do see flashbacks to Armadeus Arkham, you know, dealing with his family's very personal history of mental illness and then he opens up this asylum and he has all the good all the best intentions in the world 
And then his family is murdered by someone who ends up being one of his patients under his care in Arkham Asylum. And then he Mm -hmm. himself, you know, descends into mental illness and madness. What did you think about the parallel storylines? What was your take on that? When I think about the story, it definitely speaks to the uh, view of Arkham as a corrupting place. Um, and also Gotham as a corrupting place, right? Like when you think about Bruce Wayne and what happened to Bruce Wayne and how he became corrupted and became Batman, or in this case, Arkham also falling from grace uh, after mm-hmm. he had the best intentions. It's just uh, the cyclical nature of these Batman stories. You know, Harvey Two-Face, right? Like he was a district attorney and mm-hmm. he also falls from grace, becomes a villain, um, things like that. I mean, Joker is the only character that has basically stayed himself for a very, very long time. So well, it's interesting you said that because you're right. Like so many, and that's one thing that I love in my best interpretation of Batman or the interpretation I like the most is a more sympathetic Batman who realizes that most of the people he's fighting have just are tragic figures that, you know, had something that went wrong and set them on the wrong path. And he does kind of try to treat the the symptoms as well as the illness with these people and he does hope to one day you know reform a lot of these criminals but even joker you said okay joker has always kind of been mad but one book that i hope we do down the line is batman the killing joke which attempted to give joker his own tragic backstory his own sympathetic origin story as well so i think even joker can fall under that umbrella depending on you know which version you want to interpret but i do think that's an important part of most of Batman's rogues galleries, his villains backstory is that they, you know, were going down one path and something set them off on this path. And now they're caught up in the life of villainy. Yeah. And funny you bring up Joker because in the book, they talk about Joker having a super sanity um, that, so that's why he kind of recreates himself as like a harmless, you know, trickster, or then sometimes becoming like a murderer or a gangster uh so on and so forth so like yeah this is something that the doctors mention when batman's first shows up they they say that they're working on a new theory that joker is actually super sane that's right so he is flexible let's say like as far as his uh mental state is concerned well flexible as far as the writers are concerned with what they want to do with him from issue to issue arc to arc graphic novel to graphic novel more than anything really well, I, exactly. But I've seen arguments online about Grant Morrison choosing this route with Joker to explain the many facets of Joker throughout the ages. Yeah. Um, so that it could kind of, yeah, exactly. Just explain the type of person that he is. Um, Which so. he comes back to. I mean, so Grant Morrison, just to jump around a little bit, but Grant Morrison, this was his first time writing Batman. So this came out, like we said, in 1989. This was his first Batman story ever. And he does talk in the later editions, so the ones you probably haven't read, Kale, the 15th anniversary and onwards, where there are excerpts, or the whole script is presented, but he also has notes on it. And he talks about how this was one interpretation of Batman, and it was kind of a reaction to how people saw him in the 70s. And since then, he's kind of changed his opinion on what Batman should be. So even Grant Morrison himself doesn't love this interpretation of Batman. And I have some issues with this characterization of Batman that I want to get to. But for sure. A year later, he wrote a more kind of traditional Batman in the Gothic arc, which was uh, collected a couple issues of the Batman Legends of the Dark Knight series. So I think it was like five issues of that became this graphic novel Gothic that Grant Morrison wrote with art by Klaus Johnson, who a couple of years before that was the inker on Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. So that so a year after this graphic novel, he's already kind of reinterpreting Batman and kind of going back to a more sort of traditional Batman. And he says he's been quoted as saying he does now kind of tend to think of Batman as that sort of 70s hairy chest fighting in the desert sort of 70s interpretation. And then years later, in the uh, mid to late 2000s, he took over the main series of Batman and he did a long run on that and did a lot of really important, long-lasting changes to the character, the most notable of which he brought back Damien, Batman's um, love child, into the mainstream universe. So Batman had a son, an actual biological son, and that character, Damien, eventually became Robin. So he has a long history of Batman, but this is where he first started. This is his first attempt at the character. I don't know. I think that Batman is one of those characters that 
basically everyone knows how to write, right? Like, because he's got this long history, but Batman has gone through different changes, as you said. Uh, in the 70s... Um, Neil um, Adams is very Neil much Adams. associated with at least the art, but that's kind of the, the classic 70s interpretation of Batman with uh, a lot of Denny O'Neill writing. Right, right. So uh, I think they tried to do something different in the 70s with Batman, take him away from the campy interpretation and the tv show the biff bam pow the tv show yeah then going from that to the 80s i, I haven't read many of like of course like i've read the dark knight returns and how like revolutionary that was at the time yeah but and how that uh, took the character into more of a darker direction but very grim and gritty yeah i mean exactly and again i hope that dark knight returns is a book that we do at some point in the future as well oh totally so that's why i think that yeah, this Batman. Uh, I guess we can talk about him a little bit. <laughs> Do you, are you ready to talk about this version of Batman? Yeah, I was going to ask you. You know, what did you think of this interpretation? And I eventually, you know, let's talk about this interpretation. But eventually, I do want to ask you. You know, what is your what what is your perfect interpretation of Batman? You know, what do you think of when you think of Batman? So let's talk about what Grant Morrison did. I mean, he talks about this a lot in detail in the uh, in the script notes. So Morrison says in the notes for the script in the 15th anniversary and onwards that he, this isn't how he sees Batman now, but he was writing Batman at this time as a repressed, armored, uncertain, and sexually frozen man in Arkham Asylum. And that was a, intended as a critique of the 80s interpretation as Batman being a violent, driven, and borderline psychopathic character. But now he does prefer to think of him the way that Neil Adams drew him in the 70s. So he comes into writing Arkham Asylum in the 80s, the end of the 80s, 1989, seeing how grim and gritty Batman's become. And he's just is really trying to deconstruct him and repressed and armored. And I, I don't like this Batman, Kale. I don't like this Batman either. <laughs> okay, good. So not my Batman. Yes. I, I mean, also the art style, right? Like uh, he's more like a demonic figure in... in Yes. Just the way he's drawn. Like, he's got these long, pointy ears. and He's very it, abstract, curling shoulders. Totally. Like, flowing cape, just kind of, you know, he is very much the creature that uh, the final villain, Dr. Cavendish, uh, like, talks about. And as, yeah. like, the, the villain that, the bat that... Uh, Dr. Arkham saw and made his mother go insane and all that. So, yeah, that's what the art style is trying to get at. But this uh, version of Batman, to me, as I mentioned earlier, is that he's very much a uh, man in a suit than uh, someone that is actually a master detective that is like almost like superhuman in, in his willpower because yeah. he like Batman is supposed to be. Uh, he's the best of us he's the best yeah exactly he's the best human uh and also the um like his reaction time is supposed to be really good like he he doesn't stop you know joker from killing a, a hostage you know he, he almost gets uh defeated by a man in a dress at the end dude uh, the ending oh my gosh the ending right and so <laughs> so many of these things you're like okay batman has this archetype of like the perfect human you don't really see that at all and that's why i think maybe the name batman is missing from his book for sure I, I do think you made a good point there that batman is not in the title you know so maybe the main character is arkham asylum because i had a note here i i i don't want to spend time with people that aren't batman in my batman books like <laughs> i didn't like you know on on certain rereads i skip over the arkham the Ar amadeus arkham story because it's not batman mm -hmm. and i know that Grant Morrison is doing clever things that I appreciate as a writer. You know, he's tying in parallels and there are certain points where Arkham Asylum or sorry, Amadeus Arkham's journal notes are commenting on what Batman's doing in the present day. You know, there's this scene where Arkham is talking about how he's spinning and losing his grip and there's nothing to hold on to when we see Batman in the present day fighting with Croc, I believe, and he's been thrown out a window and is trying to grab onto a ledge and he's losing his grip. I get it. I appreciate the work that's being done there. But I, I want Batman. I don't want to spend time with Arkham, Amadeus Arkham. Like, I'm skipping right. over that part. It's, it's the same thing. I mean, it's one of the many, many reasons that I did not like The Dark Knight Rises, the film. 
I, I did not like that film, but one of the main problems I had with it is we only saw Batman on screen for such a short time, and we spent so much time with Joseph Joseph Gordon Levitt's character, who I I think he's a fantastic actor, but I didn't pay my money to go see you know this new character, the cop. I want to see Batman, and right. so in this graphic novel, like anytime we're away from Batman, you know, it's like you know Poochie the dog. Everyone should everyone's asking where's Poochie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fair so, enough. I didn't like time away from Batman. I want to spend more time with Batman. I, I I appreciate the idea of okay, he is just a man under the suit. You know that 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 he's been told the only thing the inmates want is they want him to join them in the asylum. And he says to Jim Gordon, "Batman's not afraid. Batman's not afraid of anything." But but I'm afraid, Jim. Yeah, he's kind exactly. Of breaking down. That's an interesting idea, but I mean that's kind of it. I think he kind of shows his cards too early. I I do think it's an interesting idea an interesting question does batman cause the crime in gotham does he do more harm than good is he encouraging this sort of madness does he create these sort of crazy costume villains that's interesting but i I really didn't like when batman first shows up the first thing he says to commissioner gordon is what's up (laughs) my my batman doesn't say what's up and it's such a weird thing and commissioner gordon's like arkham asylum that's what's up and i don't know if it's just because grant morrison is scottish and you know, maybe he was trying to make Batman sound more American. It's mm-hmm. a very American colloquialism, but I don't want Batman saying what's up. I hated that. I don't, you know, if Batman has to talk, I want it to be, you know, very brief and completely purposeful, but he should never be like, what's up? And then the ending. So Dr. Cavendish, the, the head of Arkham Asylum in the present, it's revealed that he has gone crazy and he's let all the inmates out and he's behind everything. And then he has Dr. Ruth, um dr ruth adams and he's got her held hostage and then she escapes and she slices cavendish's neck and kills him right to escape and batman is like he got what he deserved yeah and batman is never okay with killing he's like even if it you know it would never 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 be okay and it would never be so dismissive as like get over it he got what he deserved i hated that i hated that i hated that doesn't he stab killer croc as well and so it that Oh, he does run him through, right, with the yeah. uh, with spear. Exactly. So you're left to assume that, I don't know, I assume that Killer Croc was dead in that scene, or he was dying uh, afterwards. But again, yeah, Batman doesn't kill, so it doesn't really, I don't know, it doesn't make sense to me. But <laughs> No, it's, I mean, it's, it's one of the fundamental things about Batman is, you know, he's, everything he's doing is to, you know, ensure a world where no one has to suffer through what he suffered through when his parents died i'm looking now at the page i mean croc's been stabbed he's beginning and he kind of jumps out the window so you don't know where he lands it's very much you know like in disney cartoons when the villain always (laughs) jumps off of the ledge and lands in the water yeah you never see them again so it's up to you whether they died or managed to you know float away to to come back another day yeah but the the other thing that bugged me about batman's characterization is his treatment of two-face did you notice anything in particular about the way that he interacts with two-face when he comes across two-face two-face is very indecisive and he's being uh treated by uh dr ruth Mm -hmm. and he kind of pisses himself (laughs) because he can't decide if he can't if he wants to go to the bathroom or not because he doesn't have his coin and he had a whole bunch of uh, tarot cards to make decisions with and yeah. I, I, it two-face is very much a muted character he's I, I think that he's just like i don't know i i what do you think of uh his interactions with two-face because i i think that two-face is kind of like treated like somebody who's super weak and just like completely out of it yeah it it is interesting that he is, you know, just so infantile that he can't even decide if he should go to the bathroom. It's an interesting idea that they're trying to wean him off of his obsession with flipping the coin, his odds mm-hmm. of one and two. But I, Two-Face has always been my favorite villain because he has a very personal connection to Batman. Batman and Bruce Wayne were both very good friends with Harvey Dent before he suffered his tragic fall from grace. Mm-hmm. And there's always kind of a hint, and especially of anyone, I think, Batman believes in Harvey Dent that he can still reform him and still thinks that he can, you know, 
mend his fractured personality. But what just really bugs me about this is Batman calls him Two-Face. Instead and of Harvey. Uh, instead of Harvey. Yeah. And it just it broke my heart because in most of the interpretations that I've seen that I've really enjoyed is he calls him Harvey just as a way to reinforce. Like, you're not Two-Face. You're Harvey. I know that Harvey's down in there somewhere. Right. And for Batman to show up, it's just it's so defeatist. It's so it's so dismissive. And then the final nail in the coffin for me is Dr. Ruth Adams is like, oh, please call him Harvey. Don't call him Two-Face Batman. And she's talking down to Batman. Uh as if Batman should know better, but that, it just bugs me because I think Batman, despite you know the way that I think we both want to see him as this larger than life character that maybe can do no wrong, he at, at the heart of the Batman that I like is that he does care and he does believe in the good in people and he just through punching, but <laughs> he does think that there's hope for Harvey and it just it broke my heart when he called him Two Face and then had to be corrected. Right, right. This is also kind of. I, I don't know how uh, comics kind of dealt with the Batman, like Bruce Wayne, uh, Harvey Dent kind of relationship before. It didn't occur to me at, at first, but now when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, that's that's true. They're friends, right? So, Yeah, he still is hoping that his friend is in there. And to speak to their relationship, the, the best interpretation I've seen of their pre-Two-Face relationship is Batman the Long Halloween, which is 100% a book that I want to cover. Um, mm-hmm. And it is just... It really, really, really looks at their relationship before and kind of shows you, you know, how it all goes wrong. And it just it really breaks your heart when he does finally turn inevitably into Two-Face. That's but, right. Yeah. If you really want to get into Two-Face. And again, he's one of my favorite characters. I think he's very underserved in this story. I, I do. There are things that I like in this book. And one of the things I like is that Two-Face at the end. Again, the end is so bizarre. Batman figures out it was Cavendish. Ruth Adams mm-hmm. kills Cavendish. Batman goes, I'm going to end this once and for all. He takes an axe and he opens the door. His big dramatic confrontation at the end is he breaks the door down and says, fine, you're free to go. And they're like, oh, we know we could leave at any time. We want to stay here. Yeah. It seems very anticlimactic to me. He spent all night you know, fighting individual villains, being chased through the asylum, being confronted with his, you know, his failings and his own personal demons. And at the end, He's got this axe and you're like, oh my gosh, what's he going to do? And he, he just knocks the door open and says, okay, if you want to leave, leave. But then they say, well, what should you do with Batman? And Batman suggests, let's let Two-Face decide. So he gives him back his car, his coin. He's got the scarred coin. So one side is scratched up and that's, you know, guilty, negative consequences. Or he's got the clean side of his, his coin. That's kind of Two-Face's bit. He gives Two-Face or Harvey the coin and says, you know, you're going to decide what to do with me. And Two-Face says, okay, I'm going to flip the coin if it's scarred. Then we're going to kill him. If it's clean, we're going to let Batman go. He flips the coin. He says it's clean. Batman can leave. And then at the very end, it turns out that Two-Face actually, his coin came up scarred. He should have told all the other inmates to kill Batman, but he decided to protect his friend, which is a really nice moment. As long as you know that they have this history of being friends, if you're just looking at these characters through this book, there's no development of that relationship. There's nothing to, you know, it, it, it comes from nowhere in just this graphic novel. Two-Face looking at the coin and letting Batman go free is supposed to symbolize that the therapy that he was on is kind of working, right? Yeah, I guess you're right that he is making choices for himself and he's not stuck. He's not beholden to what the coin has dictated to him. But again, you know, we spend so little time with Two-Face that it kind of comes out of nowhere. It doesn't seem very earned to me. It's not not as triumphant a moment as it should be if we had spent more time with him and developed that character and especially that relationship, I think between these characters. Well, they were trying to get at the fact that the outside is the real madhouse and oh. Arkham is uh, the actual sane place. Which is a cool idea, but, and I don't know if this is true of the version you had, but the version that I read, the 15th anniversary version, opens with a quote from Alice in Wonderland and I'll just mm-hmm. read it to you. But I don't want to go among the mad people, Alice remarked. Oh, you can't help that, said the cat. We're all mad here. I'm mad. You're mad. How do you know I'm mad, said Alice. You must be, said the cat. You wouldn't have come here. And that's from Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And that's the quote that they start the book with. And to me, it's like, yeah, that's... It feels like he's shown us all his cards right up front. I wanted to talk about the fact that the Joker and Mm -hmm. Batman, even towards the end there, it's kind of cordial. I don't think that Batman and Joker have that kind of relationship. I, maybe that's the relationship that Joker wants. It, kind of like this weird um, 
bantery bantery kind of like even i would say romantic relationship right like he he feels like it's uh batman is the other side of himself i guess justice and order and you know joker being chaos something that has been explored in maybe like the dark knight right so yeah for sure which i do love to i want to go on record dark knight was fantastic which is one of the other reasons that i was really disappointed with dark knight rises because it was such a letdown after dark knight being so fantastic i yeah, think you're right it's it's weird having batman standing in front of joker and talking to him and having a back and forth conversation when it's like well punch him or something man like <laughs> i you know i i don't like this kind of nonsense batman batman's no nonsense especially with the joker he doesn't have time for his his tricks and his games i mean the only thing i can think of is that batman knows he's got these hostages that could be in danger inside the asylum so he has to play along but it is weird seeing these two banter back and forth and have any kind of conversation it's very odd definitely definitely so what did you what did you think of batman or sorry what did you think of joker grabbing batman's butt and saying lighten up tight ass yeah i didn't like that either (laughs) but uh (laughs) this is i think uh you know i think this is part of uh grant morrison's um kind of punk rock attitude that he has in normal life i mean i've 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 seen some interviews with him and i'm like yeah i, I see what he's he's, he's very non-conformist you know so yeah. i think this is all speaking to his uh just style of being you know being as as a person so um you probably didn't get this in the version you read but in his original script and in the thumbnails that Grant Morrison sketched out that were eventually abandoned anyway, because Dave McKeon just came in and did his own thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, Morrison wanted Joker dressed like 1980s classic Madonna. Yeah, I heard and, that. Yeah, which is interesting because he does, you know, Morrison does really believe in this sort of multiple personalities of Joker and different interpretations kind of this super sanity idea because when he writes the main series later in the 2000s he does have a more androgynous joker so he does get to kind of explore that but you know decades later totally so what did you think of the mad hatter in this story (laughs) uh you know what i i don't need a pedophilic mad hatter he's is very he's making very inappropriate sexual remarks about young girls and Mm -hmm. you know i think morrison's intent there is to give all the inmates you know other psychological issues not just super villainy but oof did did not care for that he exists to kind of give batman uh time to think about you know, or to question his own reality and sanity, right? Mm-hmm. I've I've heard that Grant Morrison in some interviews have said that uh, this could be more of a dream that Batman is having and not actual reality, and that's why Batman is acting the way he is in uh, throughout the book. So maybe that's an easy out, I would say, <laughs> right? Oh um, man! <laughs> but I like Batman. He stabs himself in the hand after you know questioning the reality that he's in because mad hatter just appears in this kind of ethereal form kind of thing right and then he disappears into smoke so yeah i I think that i don't know i i again i i don't like the interpretation of even like maxi zeus and things like that in this book either so um the art is beautiful but that's basically it (laughs) Okay, well, let, let's get to the art then. I think, I think we've talked quite a bit about the, the writing and the characters. Um, one last thing I want to say as we transition into the art is the, the format of the script is kind of unique. You know, most times in comics, there's kind of two different um, scripting styles. There's what we call full script, which is kind of what I do when I collaborate with most of my other artists is I will break down. And even when I write for myself, I like to plan everything out page by page, panel by panel. You know, this is happening on this page and this panel, and this is the last panel we see, and then we turn the page, and this is what's happening on the next page and what's happening on every panel. And then there's kind of what's described as the Marvel method where you kind of give the artist a basic outline, kind of general, you know, beat by beat outline. The artist goes away and draws everything out and decides what happens per panel, per page, and then comes back to the writer. And then the writer retroactively adds in the dialogue and the caption boxes and kind of makes it all flow and make sense. But this script was written in a very different way that it was written 
closer to like a, a film script. So if you look in the in the backup material in the later editions, you can see, you know, Grant Morrison is describing what's happening and he's pointing out who's saying what where, but he's not breaking it down by page and he's not breaking it down by panel. So then Dave McKean was free to interpret and kind of set the pacing, set the staging and set, you know, the uh, the page reveals and kind of figure that stuff out on his own. And that's one of the reasons I think that this, it started out originally as like a 48 page uh, one shot and then became this 150 page or something around that. But it is this sort of very unique way of working, which is, you know, rarely seen in comics. So just that was kind of a cool thing that I saw in the backup material. Mm, interesting. I feel like Dave McKean was given enough leeway to do his own art style here, right? Like it's, it is actually quite beautiful to look at. Um, I, I, you know, when I, as I said, when I read this book when I was younger, I didn't like it at all, the art style, mm-hmm. because I was used to kind of like a classic Batman uh, or classic comic book art style, right? Like at the mm-hmm. time. But now looking at it with fresh eyes, I like the mixed media style that he uses in this book. And mm-hmm. maybe he took, you know, certain liberties with it, but it's it's beautiful. I I really like it. I will say, reading from the 25th anniversary, which has more interviews and more participation from Dave McKeon, he did talk about his process. He said that he used acrylic, ink, and pencil Mm -hmm. on heavy watercolored paper or board, and then a mixture of collage material was added from lace and paper to wood and nails, and there is photography in there as well. So it is very much a mixed media, um, you know, even on some pages, it, it kind of changes the art, like the, the media changes from panel to panel almost in some pages. And what they did was they would take these pages and then photograph them. And in the original version, so the version you read and probably the version I read the 15th anniversary, he said that the photography wasn't perfect and it was a very shallow depth of field. So the details were lost in the transfer to the final printing uh, version of the, of the pages. And I, I agree. There's some cool imagery. You know, I really like um, the cover of the version I have has Joker's face kind of superimposed on the door of Arkham Asylum. And it's kind of like he's swallowing Batman as Batman is entering the door. And then this image is repeated in the book. The first time Amadeus Arkham goes back to Arkham Asylum before he decides to reopen it. There's this sort of ghostly face in the shadows that is kind of, again, swallowing him, you know, entering the mouth of madness very much. Um, there's some really cool things to look at. I agree with you, but uh, the problem for me is it's hard to read. So it's nice to look at, but it doesn't read well for me. Like it, it is distracting going from panel to panel. It's distracting that he obscures so much with his art style. It's distracting that he changes mediums. You know, it, it always is very jarring and it, it, it interrupts the flow and it interrupts my you know, the process of reading and it takes me out of it and it makes for a very disjointed reading experience for me. So I agree that it's nice to look at, but I don't think it works well in sequential art. I'm actually looking at the panels where uh, Scarecrow appears mm-hmm. and it's kind of unclear what happens to Scarecrow. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> there, That whole sequence when Batman is running around the asylum and he's encountering villain after villain. I mean, that scarecrow page is cool because there's a really cool sort of burlap sack texture for scarecrow's face. And I'm sure he used a like material, you know, from a sack, but I can't tell what's happening. I found myself flipping through certain sequences because I had nothing to, to hold on to and nothing to really, I didn't know where to focus. I, I kind of was flipping pages to get back to something where I, I felt like I was on steady ground. There's, it's so abstract in places where I'm just completely lost and I feel like I'm drowning in this powerful imagery, but I don't know what I'm supposed to be looking at, what I'm supposed to be experiencing, what I'm supposed to be feeling. And that whole sequence is, I think, very much suffers from that issue. You know, he encounters these characters, there's, you know, changing art styles and it's very dramatic and it, it looks kind of cool when you take it, you know, maybe a panel at a time, but it doesn't add up to anything for me. It, it doesn't connect and comics, only work when we can take, you know, a sequence of images and make it into a story in our mind. And it, this book is constantly giving me speed bumps. Could that speak to the insanity that these characters are actually going through as well? Because For sure. I, the un- I, I think that's a valid point. And Emma asked me about that too in the five minutes that I was allowed to discuss this book with her. But my counter argument is 
then I would expect this book to kind of start in a more grounded reality, a more traditional art style, like the kind of stuff you were expecting when you first read it. And it doesn't like on the right. one of the first pages, we've already got mixed media with a, a, a photograph inserted into one of the panels along with the painted art. So I, I would expect if that was the intention, you know, to go into madness, where you're not quite sure what's going on, that it would still at least start and maybe even end in some more of a recognizable reality. And I don't think this book does that. I think it starts already, you know, crazy. Yeah, actually, that's a good point, too. Even like the, the lettering and stuff like that, it's... Oh, dude. <laughs> I know. I, I wanted to talk to you about that because, you know, when the Joker speaks, the lettering is so different and it doesn't actually fall into uh, the balloons or anything like that either. So can't read it, man. Yeah, it, it's so difficult to read. Um, it, it is getting lost in the art. In, in most of the editions, it has this uh, kind of white drop shadow in an attempt to kind of separate it from the art. But even with that, it's still hard to read. In the, the most recent edition, Dave McKeon said that he went back and had the lettering change. So it has like a darker red instead of that white drop shadow. And he hopes that that makes it more legible, but it still is just so difficult to read. And it's just, I, I'm glad that you brought up lettering because I, I, you know, I talk a lot about lettering and no one gets as passionate or few people get as passionate as I do about the lettering. But for me, I thought of a good analogy. The lettering is very much like the sound mix on a film, you know, I don't care how cool the movie is or how great the special effects are, or how interesting the visuals are. If I can't hear what the characters are saying, then I'm taken out of it and I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm not experiencing the film. The lettering very much is the same for me. You know, if I can't read it legibly or if it's taken me out or if it's distracting in any way, then I don't care how cool the story is. I don't care how great the visuals are. I'm, I'm not invested. I'm already out of it. And they do so much crazy stuff. So the letterer for this book was Gaspar Saladino and it just, he gives everyone their own type of speech. So Batman's speech balloons are black with white inverted text. Uh, the Mad Hatter, who we mentioned before, his words, you know, are, the letters are growing and wavy. And like you said, Joker's words are just kind of escaping the balloons. Maxi Zeus has this sort of faux Greek with electric blue. It's just, it's, it's so in your face. It's too much. I think that falls within the theme of the book as well, that it is like too in your face and it's like, you know, it's, it's it is a bit too much. Uh, fair point, fair point. Maybe they're, you know, they're trying to get, they're trying to be heady in this uh, plot wise. Um, and then, you know, the art style is also kind of in your face. It's like very, it's beautiful, but it's kind of uh, just mixed and I don't know, it's, it is confusing at times. And then of course the lettering itself as well. So I think they, they were trying to achieve something here. I, I could tell that like the effort Cho was choices there. Choices were made. Yeah, exactly. They're, the effort was there. They like maybe got like, uh, you know, a, a nonconformist writer to come in and uh, write this for the first time. And then they got, you know, a, a you know, very creative artist to come in and write, uh, draw it. And then, yes getting uh you know a letter to come in and kind of try to interpret all of that together and i know what they were trying to do i i totally do but it's if they landed it i'm not sure about that but uh you know it's yeah it i i, I would agree with that yeah the the intention is admirable and it's a cool idea but i mean i it was you know grant morrison's first stab at batman it was dave mckean's i think third book that was actually published so they're definitely you know at the start of their career and they are you know taking bold big swings which i do appreciate but i was just thinking you know there, there's so much there and there's another quote that i wanted to read about grant morrison talking about the writing process he said that at the time he was i was still drunk with the idea that people were interested in comics that were full of fantastic layers of symbolism and obviously most people don't even have the education to pick up on the most basic things so a little bitter that quote but also very much i think speaks to his intentions that he wants to fill the page with references and symbolism and there's a lot there and you could spend a lot of time picking it apart and digging 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 but the problem for me is you know you take something like watchman and watchman has so much going on as well and i think you can spend just a lot of time almost on every page and even a decent amount of time almost on every panel pulling it apart and looking at the different layers 
But the difference for me is that Watchmen on the surface has a really engaging, fantastic story. And I don't, right. I'm right. not gripped by this story. So it doesn't grab me. It doesn't invite me to keep rereading it because I don't want to spend time with this version of Batman. I don't mm -hmm. want to spend time with this version of the Mad Hatter. I don't want to go back to these characters and give it a chance to slowly reveal the extra layers to me. Do you think that writers of that time are also trying to evolve the medium as well? Like maybe, oh. like, you know, I, do you think that like Grant Morrison was trying to stretch himself a little bit more than normal because of the fact that he wanted to kind of stand out from the crowd as well? You know, when you think about at that time, yeah, we have Dark Knight Returns from Frank Miller, uh, Watchmen, um, and very impactful comics coming out at that time, right? And I, I wonder if that was also maybe a consideration uh, for, for Grant Morrison at the time to kind of just stand out from the crowd and do something different, you know, so. For sure. And like we said, you know, he's taking a big swing. And I, th I think you're definitely on to something there that this is very much a reaction to Dark Knight Returns, which in itself was very much a reaction to campy Biff Bam Pow superheroes, but then with Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns and Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons putting out Watchmen, this was kind of in the mid 80s saying, hey, we can take superheroes seriously. We can take comics seriously. So this is very much, I think, a reaction to that. Like, You want serious comics? Well, we've got tarot cards. We've got mysticism. We've got christianity we've got you know there's a lot totally. here yeah it's just trying yeah. to be revolutionary right which again i appreciate and i i do appreciate that there's more to look at you know one of the things we said why we want to kind of do this podcast is we want to find books that have something to say but that we also have something to say about and you know this book definitely is has things it wants to say which i appreciate totally and do you think this book falls within uh kind of a halloween mindset <laughs> well we skipped over that part i was going to ask you because this was your recommendation and we were trying to find you know right. scary books for the month of october mm -hmm. i mean I, I do think there's some genuinely disturbing imagery with joker's face his face is very exaggerated and again this is in the 25th anniversary dave mckeon loves making masks and he created mm -hmm. a clay mask for the joker's face so it, it's a really terrifying image that I'll, I will share on our social media. So, you know, just a side note, follow us at Matt and Caleb Reed Comics on Instagram and Facebook and at Matt and Caleb Reed on Twitter. But I'll share this image of the mask he created. And it is really disturbing to see this Joker with this very, you know, grotesque, exaggerated face, very long chin, very exaggerated cheekbones. But then once you know that it was kind of based off of this mask, you kind of notice that joker's expression doesn't change for the entire comic and he's kind of drawn from only a few angles and it is just like taking a static mask and kind of turning it slightly from the camera <laughs> and he didn't take it and then turn it into a living breathing character but overall i mean do you find this scary i don't find it scary per se but it is disturbing mm -hmm. I, I think uh, that's also I mean, when you think about Halloween, it, it is also, you know, about some creepy imagery and things like that, too. Right. So mm -hmm. uh, I chose this book because of mainly because of the artwork, because I enjoyed the artwork uh, when I read it this time as an adult. And I, I thought, that, oh, that'd be a cool like book to share with the readers and I, th I th or the listeners because they should be like enjoying this book just for like the, the creepy artwork. It's I, I, I mean, plot aside, I, I feel like uh, there are some really cool, you know, uh, drawings and images in here that are very, very like Halloween-esque, I would say. There, there are some great visuals. I mean, one sequence in particular that I found very disturbing, um, Armadeus Arkham is realizing that his family has been murdered and he's looking at the dollhouse in his daughter's room and the dollhouse stares back at him. And we see this series of panels that get closer and closer and closer. And uh, this serial killer that he's been trying to treat, Mad Dog, has decapitated Armadeus Arkham's daughter and her de de decapitated head is in the dollhouse staring out through the tiny little windows right back at her father. 
And that was a fantastic, really horrifying sequence. So that did kind of shake me. That was really well done. Totally. And even the scarecrow, when he appears, he's like just stumbling through Arkham Asylum with his pitchfork. And mm -hmm. that is also like a very spooky image. Although yeah, I, I, like I said, I really like that kind of burlap sack sort of texture that he found for Scarecrow's face. I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, Clayface 3, like he is diseased and he wants to, you know, spread his disease by touching Batman. You know, like it, mm -hmm. that that's also a creepy image. There's so many creepy images in this book. Uh, and I think that we do little justice <laughs> to it through a podcast. I think that, yeah, you just have to kind of see to believe it kind of thing. Right. So, uh, well. We will try to share more images and yeah, I, I was discussing it with, I think my mother who is uh, an avid listener. So hi mom. But I was just saying that it is kind of funny that Kayla and I have decided to use a purely audio medium to discuss a very visual medium, but hopefully, you know, like I said, I think the best way of experiencing these episodes is you already have read the book, but if not, we will share some of the images online to get an idea of what we're talking about. So, mm -hmm. um, as you're editing, hopefully, Kayla can remind me of which sequences need to be uh, shared online. Oh, totally. Here's a sequence right here. The uh, sequence of Batman stabbing his own hand and the kind of insane grin that he has on his face yeah. while he's screaming. It's kind of crazy. You know, it's it's so crazy. Like, this is definitely not the Batman we know. But um, Well, the way that McKeon does... I don't know if it drawing is the right word. He paints them more than anything, I guess. But the way that he depicts Batman is, yeah, he does have this kind of crazy grin. And I'm wondering now if that's supposed to connect him more to the Joker. But his face is in shadow, except for like his lower half of his face. And you can see the detail of his nose. So, and I, I'm assuming the idea is that, you know, where does the man end and the, the mask, the costume begin? So he does really kind of blend into it. There's not a lot of detail, not a lot of, uh, you know, difference between batman the costume and batman the person underneath and i think maybe that's intentional but there it does create some very striking images of you know batman's eyes and shadow his upper face and shadow but then like this kind of gritted teeth you know just hitting just enough of light especially in that sequence there where he's punching the mirror and then stabbing his own hand yeah <laughs> but i will say that uh grant morrison originally wanted a different artist for the book he originally wanted um brian boland who was the artist of killing joke written by alan moore we've mentioned that a, a couple times this episode it's kind of a take on joker's origin it, you know a much more of a traditional artist and then he was kind of assigned mckeon and mckeon didn't want to do a proper a traditional batman story and um i read an interview with him on a website called book slut which sounds lovely but <laughs> the interview was interesting where he kind of admits that he wasn't the perfect fit and he didn't really want to do a Batman comic. And he feels now looking back in hindsight that maybe he shouldn't have if that wasn't something he was interested in. But he's quoted as saying he decided that painted comics were a dead end and painted superhero comics were a dead end. He shouldn't have even been driving down. Wow. I mean, say, like tell that to Alex Ross. <laughs> well, that's interesting you said that. I mean, Alex Ross is famous for fully painted interior comic pages. And I think, you know, maybe we should cover Kingdom Come, but I do have some thoughts on Alec Ross's art style, you know, going off of what we've been talking about today. Yeah, I think Alex Ross is the opposite of Dave, uh, Dave McKean then, because Alex Ross is more of the hyper-realistic painted form. His stuff is very hyper-realistic. Yeah. And, but I, I think that in itself has its own challenges and i will save that until we maybe talk about an, uh, an alex ross book which i do hope we do oh i hope um, so too i i do i, I do want to read other books by dave mckeon he's got a book called cages and black dog that i'm interested in checking out just to see because he kind of moved away from this sort of painted style and i want to see you know after a few more years or i mean decades just what his art style has evolved to to see if it's more legible and more readable but I mean, for me, I, I prefer to pick art that's a bit more clean and a, bar, a, a bit more easy to read. You know, I really like a very clean sort of Bruce Tim, Paul Dini, slightly animated style that they, you know, they draw in very similar to the Batman, the animated series style in the 1990s, as we mentioned. Definitely. 
Definitely. I, I think because, I mean, you really don't spend that much time or you shouldn't spend that much time looking at one single panel on a comic book page. You know, it should be constantly moving you to the next panel, the next piece of information. Mm. And part of the problem when you have too much text or too much detail is it does, you know, distract your eye and it does stop you from moving on and it does interrupt that flow. So I, I do think that that's a challenge for me as a reader. And it's, it sounds like you enjoyed the art style more than I did. I, I'm fully admitting that I think that he's a fantastic artist. I watched a really interesting video yesterday on a tour of his studio and he does some really incredible things, but I just think that it it's hard to take several images of that in a sequence and get anything out of it for me. Yeah, fair enough. It's really hard for me to enjoy this as a comic. I, <laughs> I, I, I say I would enjoy it more as like, uh, an art piece that is it's like an art book or something like that right so yeah. I, I would i would just kind of take a step back from everything and just enjoy it as an art book for it's just creepy imagery and um just creative use of uh different types of media so for sure and i'm glad that we discussed this book and you know i'm glad that it's part of my collection but after this deep reread you know i really 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 you know, wanted to give this book its due and I really, really went through it and I feel like I got it now, you know, we've discussed it and I, I don't think I'm going to read this again. I don't think it's going to be in constant rotation. I don't think it's going to be one that I'm going to reread when I go back to reread Dark Knight Returns or when I reread year one. I I agree. I, I'm happy that I actually have a digital copy of it mm -hmm. than uh, an actual copy because I kind of wouldn't want to have this on my bookshelf because I don't feel like I'll reread it again. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, as we're just wrapping up, one last, I have one kind of note, a random note, um, that I thought was kind of a cool thing. Amadeus Arkham, when he's talking about his mother who committed suicide and she killed herself, she killed herself with a pearl-handled razor, which I thought was really cool, you know, connecting to uh, the death of Batman's mother, Martha Wayne, you know, famously Martha and Thomas Wayne were shot in an alley in front of Bruce, but you know, it was because a uh, thief, a robber was trying to steal her pearls. And as she died, the pearl necklace was ripped off of her neck and the pearls flew everywhere. And it's this one image that you see time and time again in depictions of Batman's origin. So I thought that was kind of a cool connection between Armadeus Arkham's origin and uh, Batman's origin. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I, I didn't connect that at all and whenever you yeah, say it, Martha now I think of uh, Batman v Superman <laughs> why did you say uh, that name <laughs> no uh, that movie made choices too man it sure did it sure did um just to wrap up some further reading you know uh you know I don't think either of us would well I don't want to speak for you but I wouldn't recommend this to a casual reader mm -hmm. I, I don't know if this is going to convince anyone to dive deeper into the world of comics or the world of Batman. But if you like this idea of a superhero being locked up with the, the criminals that he's put away, Ed Brubaker and Michael Lark did a really cool run in Daredevil when they first took over the series. And the arc was called The Devil Inside and Out. And uh, Matt Murdock, Daredevil, is arrested and sent to prison. And he's in prison with some of the people he put away, but most notably Kingpin. And it's a really cool uh, series where, you know, he's trapped with the people that he put in there and he's got to, you know, figure a way to survive. And I really do recommend that. Uh, if you like that idea of a superhero locked up with the, his, his rogues gallery. Yeah. And did you know that like they were going to make a green arrow movie, which had a similar plot where Supermax he, Supermax. That's right. So <laughs> it's a good concept because you're going to be basically fighting a whole bunch of different villains and your hero would be in peril basically the entire time, right? So yeah, for sure, I, I think it's a very cool concept. Yeah, but I, I I think I would you know I wouldn't recommend this to a casual reader, but I would recommend it to someone who appreciates art as an art book, and for definitely sure, not sure. as a definitely not as a, a comic. And I wouldn't even say tell that person to actually read the book just to you know flip through and look at the art itself and uh appreciate it as just a piece of art and then kind of move on well on that note i will say that i looked at 
the collection of Dave McKeon's covers for the Sandman series, uh, there's a book they put out called Dust Covers. So he did, I think, all the covers for the Sandman series, and he did a lot of really cool mixed media things. And as, a, as an image, and especially as a cover image, it was very different to have cover images being so abstract and so artistic. But if you want to just kind of appreciate the kind of stuff he does and the amount of different materials and tools he uses, you could check out Dust Covers, McKeon's uh, Sandman covers. And he does stuff like painted canvases and then he has um, padlocks and chains. And it's just apparently the first couple were just these massive, massive canvases that he had to photograph from high up. And there's so much going in there. So if you want to just take a look at the stuff he does without it being involved in a story, as you were saying, Dust Covers will give you that. Thanks for joining us and feel free to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Matt and Kale Read Comics or on Twitter at Matt and Kale Read. And we look forward to hearing more from you about what you thought of this book or to also hear your suggestions as to what we should be reading next. Have a spooky Halloween. Yes, happy Halloween. Read some scary comics. Uh, eat some candy. Stay safe. <laughs> Stay safe. Take care. On our next episode, we'll be going over Alan Moore's V for Vendetta with a special guest. See you in two weeks.